Welcome to Manager Tools. This week, a special cast, the Corky story in multiple parts. Part one, here we go. Folks, this cast is about managing people and about how difficult it is, how difficult everybody says it is to fire people, but how really it isn't if you're a manager tools manager. And you're going to learn how to manage people effectively by coming to our Effective Manager Conference. We encourage you to come to the website, learn more, go to the forums, and ask from the people who have actually been whether or not they recommend it. I suspect you'll find they will. So, Danny, we've been talking about this cast for a, a couple time. of years now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And this is your story about how, how you fired someone named Corky, yes. who worked for you at the American Cancer Society, where you were an executive. And you've probably told this at every conference I've been to where we jointly presented, which is not that many, but I assume you tell it most every time you're presenting on your own as well. I do. I do. Yeah. Yeah. Folks, we hear all the time that you can't fire anybody around here. I have actually fired many people and it's no fun, but it's it's a real thing. Sometimes you have to do the unthinkable and terminate somebody simply because their performance is not acceptable. A lot of managers mistakenly believe it can't be done. There's good reason for that. And rather than do a typical cast where we tell you exactly how, we thought in a rare departure from the manager tools format, and we figure if we keep things rare once every year or two or three, uh, it really will be rare. We're going to tell you a story about how Danny actually used our processes to make things happen. When we ask at conferences, Hey, has anybody ever heard you can't fire anybody around here, uh, particularly about where they work? Almost everybody raises their hand. Absolutely, yeah. And it's not just union shops, folks. It's not just government shops. It's not just academia. It's not just nonprofit where this story occurred. Across all industries, all types of managers, high and low, probably more senior people can say, no, I can pretty much fire anyone I want. Managers are told over and over again, by their peers, frankly, that they, the vicious they, won't let us fire anybody. They and Joey air quotes, right? Yeah, Joey air quotes, exactly (laughs) right. So when Danny was first promoted into a managerial role, she heard the same thing. I did. And Danny's here to tell you that it's just not Not true. Not true, not true. So what we're going to do here, folks, is I'm going to let Danny tell the story and I'm going to interject when I just can't resist, which is probably <laughs> fairly frequently. So Danny, take us away. Yeah. Okay, great. Very excited. I, I, I had a hard time sleeping last night. I was so excited <laughs> thinking about recording this cast today. I uh, had a lot of fun writing it. And yeah, I tell it at, at just about every conference uh, at the end of the day. So the quirky story, as this has been come, has come to be called, is a story about how I managed one of the very first directs I ever had. His name was Quirky. Completely true story. And uh, I had inherited Quirky from uh, the previous manager, right when I got promoted into, into that role with the American Cancer Society. He was a longtime employee. He had, he had been there for, Oh gosh, probably going on 10 years, which, uh, you know, in the nonprofit world is significant. That's a pretty tenured employee. He had always gotten excellent performance reviews from his previous managers. And also he was a more mature individual and therefore he was what HR calls protected status. And folks don't know what that means. What that means is uh, we can't hire or fire based on someone's age or lack thereof. 
discriminating on the basis of age or gender is illegal in the States and in many other first world countries. And so when someone gets more senior, it becomes harder and harder to fire them. And even in some cases, HR mistakenly believes to discipline them simply because HR is fearful that a, a lawsuit will be brought against them because you are doing this because of my age. That's right. And in some cases, the reason this particularly stands out is the combination of the particular case of someone who doesn't continue to perform at a high level. In other words, there's a there's a cynical phrase, road, R-O-A-D, retired on active duty, where they're not working very hard and they're expecting at least pay increases, if not promotions. But they've they've slacked off in terms of their drive because, quote, they're older and not willing to work as hard. Uh, the classic story is, oh, he's a grandfather now, and so he wants more time off to go see his grandkids. In conjunction with the fact that they are making more money, and you could easily hire someone who would be younger and would bring more energy to the job. And, and so, cost less. And cost less, exactly. Fresh, fresh hire, right. so to speak. Yeah. And so, and, and there are some senior people who are absolutely sensitive to that. A manager, tools manager would know better and would say, look, I don't care how old or young they are. The question is how good they are, what kind of results they produce, how good, how well do they work with the team? Certainly tends to make HR a little bit more antsy though, right? When you've got yeah, somebody who's absolutely. protected status, they tend to look a little bit uh, harder at what the manager is doing when it comes time to terminate because, like you said, the, the potential lawsuit. There's something else to consider here, folks. Oftentimes, an HR person, a well-intentioned, good HR person, is simply overwhelmed. And as a function of that, they start looking for hot-button issues. They start looking for things where there is risk. And they figure if there's a lot of low-risk bad things happening, they can tolerate that. But if there's high-risk things, then they're going to absolutely pay attention to that. So you feel less well-served, uh, and I'm sure there are a lot of HR people going, yes, he's right. We try really hard, but there are times when they simply have to step in. And rather than support a manager who has a good reason for firing, and 90% of managers who go to HR expecting to fire someone don't have a good reason, but rather than supporting the manager, the HR person reflexively says, well, we've got a concern here. Corky's been here a long time. And in this case, two things. I'm not saying that HR actually told Danny this, but it would be normal for me if Danny were telling me the story and she were a licensee for me to go to assume HR might have come to her and said, Corky's protected class, meaning he's older. And secondly, well, Danny, even though there's some scuttlebutt about Corky and Danny, is it safe to say there was that he wasn't performing that well? Yes. Yeah. At the same time, they have official documentation from the company in the form of warrants or views that says Corky's doing good. So naturally, they're going to be sensitive. Right. Uh, and I was and, new to the organization. Yeah. And so I had no history with, yeah. with them, whereas yeah. he did. Yeah, exactly. And they probably liked him. Yes. Everybody yeah, sure. did. <laughs> Everybody liked Corky. He's a great guy. And, and one of the reasons is because he had friends in high places, right? He had a lot of friends in high places. In fact, he played golf on a pre pretty regular basis with the COO, and I did not. <laughs> yeah, the COO is one of the villains, I hate to say in this story. If you're listening, Mr. COO, I apologize for that. It's a, it's a characterization, not a, a threat or an insult, because he ought not to ever have been playing golf with somebody three levels down from him and not with other people across the board in the organization. It's simply not done. It's not professional. 
Okay. So he knew the COO well, and the COO was your boss's boss's boss. No, your boss's boss. Uh, sort of. I mean, they were they both reported to the C- CEO, but the yeah. COO was definitely first among equals. Yeah, first among equals. That's a great yeah. way to put it. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah, that's why he had a C in his title. That's right. Your boss didn't and have mine. A C. Didn't. That's right. Yeah. The creation of the stupid C-suite. Okay. <laughs> and as okay. I said, right, I was new to the organization, so I didn't right. have those kinds of relationships. And right, this is the organization where, as I had heard for many years, you just can't fire anyone around here, right. especially someone like Horky. I could talk about this all day long, guys, but I'm just going to say it one more time. And I know that we're running along in terms of setting this thing up, but I did tell you this is a special cast and we are telling you a story rather than delivering specific actionable guidance in a very structured format. Believe me, there's actionable stuff here, uh, but we're doing it a little, delivering it a little bit differently here. The issue with you can't fire anybody around here is not a function of HR. Okay, it is one out of 100 times. The other 99, it's an issue of the manager not doing their due diligence day in, day out, week in, week out, month in, month out, quarter in, quarter out, over the course of six or nine months, genuinely trying to help someone succeed while at the same time documenting, which is a whole nother cast we've done recently, documenting their success or failure. So it's not HR's problem. It's manager's problem. Anybody can fire anybody anywhere if they do the hard work. That's right. But what people want is to be able to have standing up while on the phone, open heart surgery. And what they don't want to do is eat their greens and work out six times a week and not drink so much and not smoke. It's the difference between wellness and, oh my gosh, the organization should go through heck because of me. And it doesn't work that way, folks. <laughs> and and HR in those instances is absolutely doing the right thing when yeah. they say, "Well, no, I, you know, we can't approve this termination because Mr. Manager or Miss Manager, you haven't done the right thing by this by this employee by your direct." Yeah, exactly. So this was what I was coming into. This I, I inherited this team, and even with this background, right. Long-time employee, mm-hmm. great performance reviews, protected status, golf with the COO. I was still able to, utilizing Manager Tools Trinity, I was still able to remove Quirky from my team. It was a lot of hard work, and it took a long time. I always tell managers, yeah, look, guys, I'm not here to tell you th- there's no silver bullet. This is not easy work, right? And uh, And what I tell people is, Mark always says, if it were easy, third graders would do it and the pay would be a lot less. Yeah. Right? Don't- but to be clear, though, you know, sometimes easy and hard are the opposites and hard implies complex or complicated. It's not no. hard or complex. Okay. And it's actually not hard as the number of when, when a boss says, okay, I'm going to give you $10 million and I need a nine month plan and you're going to have to, you know, take a, basically a week by yourself and cram extra hours. It doesn't take an hour or two every second or third night of your week. It takes slow and steady discipline. It's not complex. It's not difficult. It's not like you're spending five hours a week with this direct, are you? You're not going to tell us that you spent five hours a week with Corky no, I didn't. over and above the one-on-ones, are you? No, no. 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 You just did one-on-ones, you did feedback, you coached him, right? Yep. And you did all those things within the normal process of being a manager. Yes. 
And it ended up being that Corky's performance wasn't good enough. And Corky knew it, and you knew it, and, and ultimately the organization knew it. And, the, uh, and discipline is, is, that is really, to me, a really great word to describe it. Because when I say hard, that's what I mean. I mean, it takes discipline. It takes doing the stuff that you know is the right thing to do. Right, eating your greens, yeah. exercising, even when you don't feel like doing it. Yeah, and that's that's what I did. There were days when I did not feel like sitting through a one-on-one with Quirky. There were days when I did not feel like giving him feedback. When the easy thing to do would have just been to say, you know what, everybody else seems to be okay with it, so I'll just let it go too. Yep. But that would not have been the right thing. Right. So I want to give a little bit of background of, of how I oh, ended people up. Are gonna, people are going to kill us for this. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, Go ahead. I'll, I'll try to. No, it's, no, it's good. No, no, we told him it's a special cast. Special cast. It's a story. You know, people ask us the question, and the question is, what do I do when I've got a poor performer? And then I, I say, okay, tell me why the poor. And then, I give, and then I say, okay, now tell me the background leading up to it. So go ahead. Okay. So uh, at the time that I had moved into this role where I was Quirky's boss, I had already been with the Cancer Society for about six years. I was hired in at an individual contributor level very early in my professional career, you know, pretty young, um, fundraising position. I worked on local fundraising events. This was when I was in Florida. Mm-hmm. And at that time, there was this new thing called Relay for Life. It had just kind of taken off as a fundraising event, and I was in charge of running two brand new relay events. And I worked with our community volunteers, and we did a great job. I was very blessed to have some amazing volunteers that I got to work with early in my career. And we broke all kinds of records. We exceeded our goals every year and just had a lot of fun doing it. After my second year, Again, breaking, breaking records, exceeding my goal. The senior staff at the headquarter office came to me and said, we'd really like for you to apply for this Relay for Life coordinator position, which basically is you're going to run the Relay for Life program for the whole state. And cool. I was like, oh, okay. I mean, at first I was like, why me? But I was smart enough to not say that. I was like, sure. So, Mark, this was when, this is how you and I first met, right? Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We worked at Florida Relay for Life Task Force, which was a group of volunteers and staff. Our main role was really kind of training all of the relay staff and volunteers across the state. And a little bit of background on how I got there. I have my daughter, Kate, who many of you have heard mention on the show over the last nine years, is a cancer survivor from when she was five. The American Cancer Society had sponsored the research that saved her life when she was five. She's now 30. It's t- almost 30 in the year 2014. And uh, I felt an urge to give back. And so I was a chair of a Relay for Life in my town of Fredericksburg, Texas. And we had a very successful relay, the number one per capita relay in the state of Texas. We had that for a couple of years until we turned it over to somebody else because succession planning matters. And um, because of an event in San Antonio where I spoke, and I spoke because people in Texas said, hey, you're a good chair. And by the way, you teach people, you train people on stuff. So maybe you'd be a good speaker and got lucky and met the group at the Florida state level that asked Danny to join. So I was actually working with the Florida State people at the state level when they asked Danny to join. As I recall, you were driving to Orlando to on Orlando. the interstate. <laughs> yes. And when Jerry got you on the phone and asked you and you were quite uh, overtaken. I so. was. I was. Okay. All right. So, 
So that's how you and I met. That's and how then, we met. But you didn't stay in Florida. I didn't, no. After a year, I applied for a very similar role in Pennsylvania because that's where I was from. Right. And this was an opportunity to manage more events. This was an opportunity for to run a bigger budget. Now, this, this is pre-manager tools and pre-manager tools interviewing series. But Mark, I'll never forget. I remember doing practice interviews on the phone with you. Yeah. Uh, running through questions. You taught me how to close. In fact, I'll never forget being up in Pennsylvania. They took me out to lunch for my interview. And at the end, we were standing up from the table, you know, get, kind of putting our coats on everything, getting ready to walk back to the office. Uh, interview is over and I closed. And I'll never forget the looks on their faces when I said, I really want an offer. And here's why. Um, I, <laughs> for the rest of my life, I will never forget that moment. So... <laughs> There's a little plug for the interviewing series. So obviously, I, I was offered the position, moved back to Pennsylvania. I was there for three years. And during that three-year time frame, we grew Relay for Life by 68%. And so by the time I left, we were raising about $16 million every year. And again, lots of help from Mark over those three years. It was my secret weapon. Uh, anytime there was, there was an issue and I didn't know what huh. to do or I wasn't sure what to do, I would pick up the phone and call Mark. And you, I remember you and Jerry coming to Pennsylvania several times to uh, help us with our leadership yep. team meetings and train our volunteers and drive through the, through the mountains to get to State yep. College. And, and, uh, and we had a lot of fun. Yep. Did some good stuff. So after, after those three years, I was getting really good results. And the people at the National Home Office started kind of, paying attention to, you know, hey, what's what's this gal in Pennsylvania up to? What's she doing? And they asked me if I would apply for the senior director of Relay for Life in the Mid-South, what was called the Mid-South Division. Just real quickly, the society at that point was organized into a bunch of geographical divisions across the United States. And this region consisted of six states in the in the southern part of the United States. We had Arkansas, Alabama, Mississippi, Kentucky, Louisiana, and Tennessee. Again, it was a step up for me because it was the opportunity to go from managing uh, about 120 relays to managing over 500 and an annual budget of $31 million. So although the role was similar, it was within the organization a step up because it was a big, it was a bigger organization, bigger part of the organization, bigger division. And it's also meant that for the first time, I was actually going to be managing staff. So again, I picked up the phone. I called my secret weapon, Mark, help me, help me with this. <laughs> what do I do? What do I do? <laughs> and I flew down to Birmingham, Alabama, uh, interviewed with the executive team, interviewed with the CEO, COO. And again, yep, every single time I want an offer and here's why. So within the course of Gosh, less than two months, I was packing up and moving myself from Pennsylvania to Louisville, Kentucky. And this was when I met Corky and the rest of my, my the other folks on my team. I had a total of three direct reports. Um, Corky was one of them. And they, they all had really good experience with the society and they knew Relay for Life. So I was really excited because... It was a new team. It was going to be a new challenge for me, managing staff. 
And I was working for with people, working, you know, managing direct reports who knew what they were doing. I was nervous. I was excited. All kinds of questions running through my head, right? What if they don't <laughs> like me? What if, what if relay is different in the South? You know, here I am, this Yankee going down South. What if what I did in Pennsylvania? I, what if I couldn't do it again? What if I was a one hit wonder? Um, All the normal impressions of a first time manager. Yeah. And okay. the one, the question that I kept thinking about over and over again was, how the heck do I man? I, I don't know how to manage staff. And what if they can tell that I don't know what I'm doing as a manager? Yeah, folks, if you don't realize this, recognize that Danny is about to tell the Corky story relative to the fact that she did it as a first-time manager in one of her, her very first directs in the nonprofit world. So when people say, you can't fire people around here, I often say, well, you should hear Danny tell the story. And that's why we're doing this cast. So I can just say the Corky story, like I say, the Windy Curve, or hey, listen to the one-on-one -on -one cast, or listen how to fire someone. Well, almost. Yeah. Okay, good. So again, I called Mark. Okay, Mark, you help me get here. Now what do I do? <laughs> and I, again, I have this image in my head that I will forever remember. I'm sitting in my office in Louisville, Kentucky. I haven't even unpacked stuff, right? I've got boxes piled around me. I pick up the phone. I don't really know how to use the phone yet. It's a different phone system. And I call Mark and I'm like, okay, what do I do? And that's the first time I heard about these things called one-on-ones. And he said, so Danny, the first thing you need to do is you need to schedule weekly 30-minute meetings with each one of your direct reports. And I'll, I'll never forget one of the things I said was, well, I've never had a manager do one-on-ones <laughs> with me. <laughs> and your response was, that's because you haven't worked for a good manager. <laughs> and you said, yeah, okay, yeah, okay. you're right. <laughs> okay. So Corky and I, we both worked in the Louisville office. My other two direct reports were, were not co-located. One worked in Birmingham, one worked in Tennessee. But since Corky and I worked in the same office, he was, I don't know, 30 feet away from me. We could do our one-on-ones in person. Okay. My other two direct reports, we did our one-on-ones over the phone. So Mark explained all this to me, right? You can do your one-on-ones with Corky in person. You can do the other ones over the phone. You went over the agenda with me, right? 10 minutes for them to talk about what they want to talk about. 10 minutes for you to talk about what you want to talk about. The last 10 minutes to talk about the future, although probably not going to happen every week. And I remember sitting there just writing, just furiously writing notes, taking down as much as I could. Those of you who've listened to podcasts, imagine listening to a podcast and not having the written show notes if you're a licensee and trying to write down everything that you hear in the podcast. And you don't even have the helpful recording that you can go back and re-listen to. So it was just like yeah. live transcription. I'm just trying to write <laughs> down as much as I can hear. And you would just talk. You would just, you would just talk for 10 or 15 minutes. And I would just be sitting there writing down everything that I could, ver as close to verbatim as I could. And there would often be these moments of, of where you would stop talking and I would realize, oh, I, I'm supposed to say something, but I'm still writing down like what you said three sentences ago. And, and that's where the phrase, I'm taking notes or Danny's taking notes has kind of got its start, right? It's, it's yeah. kind of a joke around here now that, you know, if somebody, if Danny's not talking right away, it's because she's writing, she's taking notes. Yeah. Um, and that's and, what I used to do. And, yeah. And that's why we have annual licenses. So yeah. Everybody doesn't have to, take have to do that. <laughs> yes. 
Yeah, in fact, somebody just tweeted that reading Peter Drucker is like listening to M.A. at M.A. Horstman because I want to write everything down. And first of all, he had it backwards. And second of all, I'm not worthy of that comparison. And third of all, why wouldn't you just buy a license? Life. Yeah. But anyway. <laughs> nice. Okay. Very cool. Yeah. Very cool. And now, at some point during this call, Mark, I know I asked you, so <laughs> how long do I have to do these thing, this thing called one-on-ones, right? Like six months, three months, I don't yeah. maybe a year, you know, at the most I'm thinking, oh, a year, right? And there was this, there was this dead silence, just crickets. <laughs> and this is called the horseman pause. And what it is, is it is basically a sign that says, hey, that was not a great question that you just asked. <laughs> Right. And then very, very kind of quietly, you just said forever. (laughs) Like, duh. Yeah. And I remember trying to be like, oh, yeah, that's what I thought. But yeah, I don't think I don't think I fooled you. (laughs) Yeah, no. Yeah. So after we get off the phone, I'm, you know, I have all this written down. Like, okay, I need to do these one on one things. And one of the things that Mark told me was, you know, send, you'll send out an email to your new directs explaining one-on-ones. And he said, I'll send you, I'll send you a draft email that you can tweak a little bit, which we again have available right on the website. If you want to use it, it's a great email. And I remember taking that email and, you know, I, I tweaked it a little bit. I, I put some of my own words into it, but I remember at that moment hitting send and thinking, my first official boss email, my first <laughs> official action as a boss. And again, being a little bit nervous, but also pretty excited. So I started one-on-ones and for the first, probably the first month to two months, it was pretty focused on me learning about, about my directs, their background, their experience, what exactly they did in the organization where they saw they their fit and what they liked about their job, what they didn't like about their job, stuff like that. And then also answering their questions about me. It was hard for me during those those first couple months to take it slow this way. My natural tendency as a high D, high I, like right. Mark is, is to go fast. And, you know, I had been hired with the understanding that Danny, we need you to come in and, and help us because the previous year, the organization had actually not made its Relay for Life goal, which was the first time ever that that had happened. And, you know, I remember I just constantly reminding myself, don't make a lot of changes, focus on fitting in, listen more, talk less, which is not my natural style, not not easy for me. Right. Um, and the, the metaphor that Mark, that you used with me, I don't know if you remember this was you told me don't swing for the fences. Yeah. Just hit singles, just hit hit singles, singles in the beginning. Yeah. Yep. Which I recently shared with a conference attendee who was in a new role. And he, he, t- he said the same thing. He said, but they told me they, they hired me because they want me to come in and shake things up. And I was like, <laughs> I, I'm telling you, don't believe it's, them. It's always a lie. It's a lie. Yep. It's a lie. So I was so glad looking back, I was really glad that I took that time to really get to know, to get to know them and build relationships with them. So what their job was, my directs, was basically they were there to help the local field staff, the individual contributors with their relay events. We had six 
state vice presidents and they would essentially come to me and say, Danny, we've got some new staff who need help, who need some training, or we've got some events that are struggling a little bit. Um, we don't have great volunteers. Can you come in? Can your staff come in and help us kind of, kind of give us a boost? And Corky's primary job was to travel throughout our six states, throughout the territory, and assist the new staff, the struggling events, to go on sales calls in their community. Uh, he would go and spend a couple of days and travel around with the local field staff and go on sales calls asking for sponsorship dollars or volunteers to help get the events going. The idea was that the local staff, usually they were new, uh, new in their role, it was kind of like on-the-job training, and they would travel with him to watch him in action because he was very good at, at talking up the society and talking about Relay. He was very good at selling the mission of the organization. Mm -hmm. Very friendly, very outgoing. I mean, he could strike up a conversation with anybody. He has never met a stranger and was very passionate about what we did. The only problem was... He did everything right during those visits, except he did not close the sales call. So week after week during our one-on-ones, he's coming back and I'm asking him, okay, Corky, how many sponsors did you get? How many volunteers did you get? And week after week, I, I got very vague, you know, non-specific, like stuff like, well, I'm really sure that they're going to do something. And we had some great visits and I really think people there are going to step up. I think <laughs> it's going to be a great event. I'm not worried about it, but no hard numbers. Right. So it became clear to me pretty quickly that as nice of a guy as Corky was and is very nice guy, he just was not effective. I was not seeing the results the, the return on the investment. It was not cheap to send him out on these road trips, his time and then plus travel. And really, you know, I needed more from that role. He was, he was a third of my team. And, you know, it's, it's hard to hide when you're only one of three. And I need, if we were going to make our goals, we had to have, we had to have all of us, you know, firing on full cylinders. But again, this is probably only after about two or three months. And so I was not going to start making changes. I continued to just focus on building relationships with Corky and my other two directs, building the relationship with my boss, plus building my relationships with all of the vice presidents. Right. Um, Which is a big part of a early manager's deliverables, if you will, build the important relationships so that you can learn about them and what they need from you and so on. Interestingly, you know, we talk all the time about, you know, waiting. We, we tell you to wait. And as, as per the story you just related about the person at the conference you, you were at. And the way we say that is, if you are not careful and you don't develop relationships, the people that you don't build the relationships with are the people who are going to have to carry the water for you a year from now. If you don't build relationships, they won't carry the water a year from now. Whatever you get done early on is probably going to be misguided because you don't know the organization. And then you'll have burned your bridges. I don't mean to mix a metaphor with burning bridges and carrying water, but <laughs> be that as it may. That's it for part one, folks. Stay tuned for part two next week. See you then. <laughs>